Hey Common Ground, Evan here for what is part seven of our bonus content podcast on the book of Daniel. Really excited for today as we are looking at the nitty gritty details of Daniel chapter seven. As always, this is the podcast where we explore the bonus content that gets cut out of the sermons, some of the extra interesting Bible study things that we can learn from it, the kind of stuff that only you listeners, the best and the brightest Bible nerds, listen to and care about. And so we're going to look at that today, Daniel chapter 7. And as always, we hope that in some way this helps you to understand the book of Daniel. This helps you to live as an exile in a foreign land, how to follow God without being swallowed up by the culture. And if it doesn't do those two things, I hope it's entertaining for you. As we talked about on Sunday, Daniel chapter 7 is where things get weird. Um, This is where it switches from historical court tales and these fun Sunday school stories to apocalyptic literature. Um, This is where we get to the point where we start to get into the dreams and the visions of the future and of, of reality the way that only God can see it and all of these weird beasts and strange dreams and all the craziness that comes with that. Descriptions of time when we try to calculate when is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? Descriptions of people and we don't know who they are or what the point is. And so it gets really fun. Uh, There's a lot to talk about, but there's also a lot um, of disagreement and there's a lot of nuance here. And one of the things that we have to recognize, of course, when it comes to Daniel 7 or even the rest of Daniel is that there are a lot of different opinions. There are a lot of smart people that I respect mostly who have different ideas of what this could mean because essentially there aren't clear answers and God has veiled um, these messages for a reason. He has veiled them for a reason and only illuminated or unveiled or uh, or like shown us what he wants us to see. And so the rest of it, of course, is left to speculation. It's left for us to figure out And this, of course, has led so many people to approaching Daniel this way. Now, one scholar, an Old Testament scholar from Yale, wrote in his commentary, he basically went so far as to say that one particular phrase in one particular verse in one particular chapter of Daniel, which is chapter 7 that we're looking at now, has caused more debate than any other verse in the entire Hebrew Bible. Now, that's a big claim. That's a big claim because, honestly, I would think that it would be, you know, Genesis 1. It would be, you know, an argument about the age of the earth or about creation and about that account. But he claims that this is actually bigger, that the speculation um, in Daniel chapter 7 is actually bigger. And when you look at just the amount of, of writing and research and debate that has gone into it, he's probably right. There is a lot. I mean, you can read entire books and libraries of books on just a few verses from this chapter. It's deep. We're not going to get into absolutely everything that happened here. Instead, I just want to go into uh, some of the descriptions of these beasts that were talked about, because one of the things that I think is most valuable about the book of Daniel is how accurate it is to history. And I think that 
is encouraging to us as Bible readers to just see the accuracy and the inerrancy of Scripture. And so I want to lean into that and just look at these beasts, look at the descriptions that God gave Daniel of these kingdoms and of these empires and of these leaders before these empires even existed, before these leaders were even born. And the fact that the Bible accurately predicted that and prophesied that well before it happened should be encouraging and should be a reminder to us to trust the Bible, to trust the Word of God as just that. And so I'm going to look a bit of that, and then I'm going to look at one of many, as we said, there are a lot of different theological ideas in here, um, but just one of the ideas in regard to Jesus being this Son of Man, being this cloud rider, so to speak. So that's what we're going to look at. But of course, so much debate, so much difficulty, so much speculation on this chapter. Sinclair Ferguson, the famous commentator and preacher, he said this in regard to this chapter. He said that the overarching focus of this chapter, chapter 7, is to focus our attention on the age-long conflict of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Just when Daniel is anticipating deliverance from the kingdom of God in the form of deliverance from exile, he learns an important lesson. This conflict is endemic to the world to world history until the end. Rather than decrease, it will be perpetuated until it reaches its zenith in the ferocious blasphemies of the little horn. And so, a battle between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth and the big antagonists here are, of course, these four beasts that are described. We mentioned who they are. Of course, first beast, Babylon. Second one, the Medes and the Persians. Third one, Greece. And then the fourth one, it's going to get a little fuzzy there. But I just want to look at exactly how precise um, the Bible is at describing these kingdoms. And this first beast, as we know, we know we talked about this is Babylon. And this we know this is Babylon because it, it's described as a lion with eagle's wings, right? A lion with eagle's wings. And a lion was well known to be the symbol of the empire of Babylon. It was like their bald eagle. They had lion statues everywhere, lion art on walls, on their buildings, on their coins, everything. Lions were everywhere in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar himself was also referred to as a lion, in Jeremiah 4, 7, and in Ezekiel 17, 3, they refer to Nebuchadnezzar the man by calling him a lion. And then in Daniel chapter 7, it says that the wings were plucked. Wings were plucked, and we know that Nebuchadnezzar essentially went crazy for a time. He went crazy for a little bit of time, lost his mind for seven years. And then it says the wings were plucked, and then he was given the heart of a man. And if we look back at Daniel chapter 4, we see that after he went crazy, he repented. He gained his right mind again and essentially changed from just being that beast to getting the heart or the, the mind of a man. And he essentially regained his mind as if to say he was restored from being a beast back to a man. And so the line is easy. That's Babylon. Um, the next one is a bear, right? It talks about this bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. And you'll find this description of the, the Medes and the Persians, of the Persian Empire, actually very precise um, because Cyrus the Great, who was the leader of this empire, 
uh, he was very bearish in attitude, I would say. You know, a big part about bears is that they're huge, they're lumbering, and they're slow, you know? And this is essentially how the Persian Empire operated. They operated with the biggest army you could get. Uh, it was recorded in history that Cyrus had an army of two and a half million soldiers. Two and a half million. That isn't a giant army even by today's standards. Uh, the United States has an army of about 1.3 million active duty soldiers. China is the largest military in the world, and they have just over 2 million active soldiers. And so 2.5 million, 2,500 years ago, that was an enormous army. And Cyrus's whole strategy was just about getting as many bodies in one place, as many people with a pulse in one place as you can, and just bullying people around with that. Just like getting a big body of a bear in there. And so Cyrus, he would just march massive armies up to cities. He'd march them up to a city and people would just give up. They would just drop everything. They would give him to him because their armies were so huge. And he would just subdue people simply by his size, just by intimidation. Another description of this bear is that it's raised up on one side. Well, we know that it wasn't just the Persian Empire, but that it was this kind of joint union of the Medes and the Persians. And, and so they were two empires who essentially joined forces to become one empire. However, the Persian part of the empire was much stronger than the Median part of the empire. And so it's like it was lopsided. It's like it was raised up on one side, right? One side of this empire was much higher than the other because the Persians were much stronger than the Medes. And so we see this aspect of it being raised up on one side. This bear is also described as having three ribs in its mouth, three ribs between its teeth. And most theologians, uh, they agree that this speaks of the three main kingdoms that the Medo-Persian Empire defeated. And so these three ribs are the three big empires that they beat. The Babylonian Empire... Uh, we read about them beating them when they came in and killed Belshazzar, uh, the Egyptian Empire, and the Lydian Empire. All three of those empires fell at the hand of the Medes and the Persians, and so it's agreed by, by, by and large um, that these ribs are just a reference to the different empires that they defeated. So the Medes and the Persians are the bear, and then comes this crazy uh, four-headed, four-winged leopard. And we know that this, this is the Greek Empire, right? The Greek Empire led by Alexander the Great. And we're going to continue to get more um, prophecies about this as we keep going on Daniel. Um, but Alexander the Great, really one of the most intriguing figures in history. I've been studying him a lot recently just because of how critical he was um, to the scriptures and how much the Bible actually talked about him was fascinating. Um, but Alexander the Great... Huge, huge empire, conquered it with this small, quick force of essentially little green berets, you know, quick like a little leopard, essentially. So they conquered huge amounts of land. And at the age of 29, um, he actually, they record that he fell on his bed crying, sad that there were no more worlds for him to conquer, right? He felt like he had conquered the whole world. There's nothing left. What's he going to do with his life? Thought he had really made it. Then we know that he tragically died at the age of 33, pretty young, 
having uh, conquered a lot, but he was on his deathbed with what most think was malaria. And as he was dying, um, <clears throat> one of the history books <clears throat> says that, that his leaders came to him as he's laying there dying and they said, Alexander, who is going to get the kingdom? And they're expecting him just to name his successor or to tell them who is going to get it. But while Alexander was dying, he simply said, give my kingdom to the powerful. And then he died. And so I'm sure, you know, that made for uh, a pretty tough uh, staff meeting the next day. Like, uh, all right, we'll give it to the powerful. Um, And so that's basically what they did. Uh, They just gave the empire, they split it in four ways between the four generals that Alexander had. And so that is where we see the four heads, the four wings. History tells us that they gave Alexander's kingdom to four different generals. And I'll just give you the names of these generals because they're going to come into play later um, in the prophecies of Daniel. And actually, in a huge way, uh, they will come in. And so uh, the generals were Cassander, Ptolemy, Ptolemy with a P, (laughs) Antigonus, and Seleucus. And so Cassander, he took over the Europe part. Antigonus took over Asia Minor. Ptolemy took over Egypt. And then Seleucus took over Babylon, Asia, and Syria. And so you get these four guys, these four generals are depicted here in this leopard with four heads and four wings because they're four generals. And we're going to see that later. Um, the, uh, God is going to explain a bit more of what they have to do in Scripture. And so we see them as this beast, the Greeks with Alexander the Great. Then the big one, the fourth beast, this weird, super horned mega beast this is the one that there's a bit of a debate on. Most scholars say it's Rome. They look back and they say this has got to be Rome, um, not because of the description here, but because of the parallel between uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream previously in chapter 2 with a statue. And so they say, well, that was a description of Rome with, you know, the ten toes, the bronze, and the iron. That's got to be the Roman Empire. Uh, but this doesn't really sound like it's Rome because Rome never had 10 kings and there are just some things that don't quite fit. Um, But nonetheless, a lot of people think it was Rome. A lot of people think because that's when Jesus came into the picture was during the Roman Empire. Some other scholars say that it could be the Syrians, the Syrian Empire. Um, The Syrian Empire was ruled by a guy named Antiochus, And the reason they think it was the Syrian Empire was because of their government structure, because they had 10 leaders, and because this guy Antiochus, their leader, was so horrible. And so they describe him as potentially being this, you know, man of lawlessness, so to speak, this Antichrist figure just before Christ came. We know Antiochus was a horrible person. Um, He brought all kinds of persecution on Israel, persecution that was just about as bad as they had ever experienced before. He made it illegal to practice Judaism in Jerusalem. Uh, He cleared out the temple, filled it full of idols, filled it full of his own gods, made sacrifices to his own gods, um, and was really going around persecuting the Jews. He stopped Um, the sacrificial system, he stopped the calendar of Passover and changed the time to his own calendar. And so this is another reason that people look to him as potentially this beast, potentially this guy. But it's not quite certain. And then, of course, 
as we know with Bible prophecy, there's always a bit of a now and a not yet. And so while it was confirmed to have happened and to have been those four empires, many still looking for the fulfillment of that prophecy sometime later on in the future. Which empires is it going to be? Is it going to be Russia, North Korea, Iran, Iceland? Who knows, you know? And so we know who it was in the past, and then there's going to be a ton of speculation about who it is in the future. And that is where that commentator says, this is one of the things that has been argued about the most. I would just say, you are free to spend hours on YouTube watching videos of guys, typically with southern accents and poorly fitted suits, um, describe this. However, you know, honestly, I wouldn't recommend it. I would read a few of the biblical scholars on this to get some perspective, get a bit of nuance to recognize that there are different theories, and that would probably be enough for you. Um, I don't think you have to spend too much time figuring this out. One of the important things that we learn in this chapter is in verse 13, and it is the description of this one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And as we talked about, one like a son of man literally just means a human. And we know that this was the title that Jesus referred to himself most as. And so we know that this is Jesus. This one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven is Jesus. But here's the thing. At the time when this was written and when this was prophesied, the fact that he rides a cloud up to heaven to be next to God was a big deal. This was theologically a wild idea for the Jews. Okay, wild because as the Jews looked forward to the Messiah, there was much debate about whether or not the Messiah would be human or whether he would be divine, he would be God. And there's so many things that the Messiah must do, so many requirements that he must fulfill that only a human can fulfill. And we know that this is critical to Jesus's role that he had to be human. But the role of Messiah seems so impossible. It seems impossible for a human. So Back then, when they were looking forward to the Messiah, they argued that he must be divine in order to fulfill this. So how could he be both? And the Israelites also had a strict theological belief that only God, only Yahweh, was the one who rode on the clouds. And this was to combat many of the idolatries around that claimed that other divine beings or spirits or idols were God or were legitimate. And they made it clear that Yahweh is set apart because he is the one person who rides on the clouds. That is him. He's the only one. This it was unique to Yahweh. And so for anyone to ride on the clouds is essentially to say they are God. A few examples of this. Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is no one like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help and with his majesty through the skies. Psalm 68, verse 32 through 33. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praise to the Lord, Selah, to the one who rides in the highest heavens of old. Here's one, a few more. Uh, Psalm 104, uh, verses 1 through 4. It talks about the one who sets beams in the waters for his upper chambers, who makes the clouds his chariot, who rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19. Look, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble in front of him, and the heart of Egypt melts in its inner part. And so, God is the only one who rides on the clouds. If anyone rides on a cloud, that must be Yahweh. He's the only one. He's the only true God. And so, he's the one who rides on a cloud. 
But then here in Daniel chapter 7, someone else is riding on the clouds. Something only God can do. And this someone is one like a son of man, a human. How is this possible? How can a person be a human and ride on the clouds like God? Well, we know that this was a prophecy about the Messiah and this was a prophecy about Jesus. So this implies that the Messiah could be both human and God. And as we know from the New Testament, that that is indeed who Jesus was, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was both. And so this is another piece of evidence that Jesus is divine. And for Jesus to claim to be the son of man in the New Testament is also to claim he's the one who rides on the clouds, that he is God. And so that was a big statement for Jesus to say, I am the son of man. I am a human who is God. That's a big deal. Um, But that seems like such a subtle little verse that has such big theological significance. Jesus is fully God, fully man. One like a son of man who rides on the clouds. So that's Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, as we look at the descriptions of these beasts, um, all the debate that is going around about who they are in the future, but one of the things that we can look back on is look back on the Bible's accuracy in the past of how it described these kingdoms, how it described these beasts, how well the description in uh, this dream fit real kingdoms that took place in history on this world. And then we looked at the big claim that That Jesus is the son of man, that he's human, but yet he's coming on the clouds of heaven. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. And and while this seems like such a subtle, small, insignificant verse, when we look into it, we see how theologically significant it is. Um, And then we praise God for that. We praise God for the significance that not only do we have Jesus as a human who who could mediate between us, who who could take the punishment for our sin, and who could experience everything we had experienced, but also one who is divine, one who is capable of overcoming, one who has the authority and the power over life and death, and so he was able to free us from our sin. And and that's significant, and that is what is explained here in verse 13, that the one, like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven, that's Jesus, fully God, fully man. So that's Daniel chapter 7, on this wild chapter about Daniel's crazy dream in which God communicates so much about what is really happening in the world and how we, in this world full of beasts, can hold on to hope knowing that one like a son of man is coming on the clouds with authority over everything, going to defeat these kingdoms of beasts and going to bring in his kingdom. So that's Daniel chapter 7. Thanks for listening.